Is this the five O? Which one is this? This is the forty nine. Ooh, perfect. Four nine. In honor of the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. All right. Welcome to episode forty nine, the big four nine. Are we gonna make it to fifty? <laughs> You're going to have to listen again next week <laughs> to find out. Welcome to TGE, the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just fresh off seeing it in the theaters. I saw it. Tyler, you saw it. How are you? Good. I'm doing good, Sven. We hope that a lot of the listeners have seen it as well. If not, you probably don't want to listen to this. Got a little bit of grief last time for doing our analysis of certain editing aspects of the Game of Thrones for not just going deep enough on spoilers because people saw it, et cetera, et cetera. So we are going to be talking about things in depth that will probably ruin the experience of this movie because the less you know going in, it seems like that's what the filmmaker wants. So come on back after you see the film. Um, well, speak for yourself, Tyler, because I've, for what I want to talk about, we don't need to spoil it, but um, you do <laughs> if you want to. Feel free to. I, I'm saying... I'm saying, you know, in terms of the director's intention, which is that you know nothing, and that's what I wanted to know going into oh, okay. it. There's very little given away in the trailer, and I think it's nice to have that in a movie, so. Gotcha. Yeah, so come, come on back, and if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. If you want to come back later and you're worried you're going to lose us, subscribe to the podcast. If you're that person who's worried and you have an iPhone, you can simply say, Siri, subscribe to this podcast, and Siri will androgynously do that for you. And... That's all I have to say about anything. <laughs> before we Spotify, get, Stitcher, something else. <laughs> before we get into it, I have two user comments that we could run through real quick Ooh. and answer some questions. Number one, Amanda Ooh. writes, and this is from this morning, and I told her, you're going to have to hear the answer in the podcast. So, Amanda, I hope you listening in. You said, good morning. I got a couple of questions. How do you get around the obstacle of not having the footage to make a transition to move the story forward? How do you handle not Ooh. having continuity through throughout <laughs> the footage provided? Thanks so much, Amanda. Tyler, what's your answer? <laughs> I'm congratulations on working with Crispin Glover <laughs> and <laughs> who infamously would not match on Back to the Future. And when Robert Zemeckis kept complaining about the fact that like his hair would literally be entirely pulled straight from one take to the next, he would say Brando never matched. Right. He was a young man, but he's also a brilliant man. But anyways, that's not your question. What's my answer to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, rarely are you going to get away with perfect continuity. And to me, most of the fun with editing is cheating it and having people not notice because they're so caught up in what's going on where you've been so slippery. But use cutaways, use whatever. If it's something that actually takes you out of the story, that's when it's a problem. Otherwise, who cares? Let it, let it be a little raw, right? That's what we're talking about, a raw movie tonight. In yeah. terms of transitions, <laughs> we have all kinds of tricks. You, you can multiply frames. What else can you do, Sven? Oh, you can flip them sometimes. That works. Ooh. Oh, yeah, play forwards and backwards. Um, you can cut on action. Like You can hide almost any continuity issue by just cutting to a shot where immediately you are thrown into the energy through a body movement or something like that um, that completely Ooh. draws the attention of the viewer to that as opposed to how how did we get here 
Ooh, ooh, Sven, what about using off-camera sound to justify a continuity error? There you go. You can do that. Like, oh, that's how that bottle got opened. I heard that can open off-camera. Yeah, it actually... I heard him undo his tie. <laughs> I heard him sh- pull his fucking hair out to the ends. It can actually make your flow move better because you are getting ahead of the audience while they're trying to like make sense out of what happens next you're already like two steps ahead of them and they're like oh what how did we get here and so you can raise uh, audience engagement if you cut in a way that you're always slightly ahead of them and that also has to do with like jump cutting some stuff or just compressing time that kind of thing so yeah i wouldn't be too worried i think walter merch is not too worried if you read the book in the blink of an eye i think it's like at the bottom of the list of what makes a cut a cut that works the number one thing is the emotion then it's like mm-hmm. the motion story story the emotion the story the rhythm and pace are the top three and then you have the i believe it's the eye trace after that yeah where people in the are looking and then the three-dimensional space. space of the room is the last thing and I guess that's five, so we totally left something out. Yeah, number six is continuity. Like ten years. No, because the continuity is the three-dimensional space of action, and then also, oh, so that's where things are taking place in the set, and then the two-dimensional image, that's, that's where you're looking from one frame to the next, and the screen direction. Oh, 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 so the focal point, so the eye trace is one thing, the, two, the, the, the two-dimensional space of action, the way things are, are headed on the screen, the screen direction, that's the second to last thing, and then the, the, the least important thing is the, um, where the three-dimensional space of action, which is where stuff is within the frame. So it's, it's been a long Monday. We should know this better, and we could just look at it and read it and sound smart, but, but this is what you get. Yeah, and also... I just this weekend saw a documentary about Jill Bilcock, the editor of Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet. And the documentary was called Dancing the Invisible. And she made a point to really try and not ask for additional shots. She says there's always a way to cut a scene. There's always a solution in the editing usually. So in very rarely does she ever ask for pickup shots to make something work. And I think that applies oh, to totally. continuity as well. Yeah, and I'm working on a thing right now where you know you just sit there and you go, okay, I'm glad you're you're happy, but I didn't really have the best. You know, this just would have been so much easier with more stuff to work with. But I'm glad this is I'm glad this has been made to to work, and it pushes you to be creative. Exactly. It's just I sometimes guess not having the perfect shot is what makes it interesting. What makes you think out of the box and create something that hasn't been done before, and people are intrigued because they're like, oh. I didn't see this one coming. Yes, and I think that's Sven's one of his like major powers. And it's just like never mind not having the stuff, but from having suffered through that for so long with reality or whatever. When you get your hands on a drama, you're just finding things to exploit left and right that just bring a real editor's vision to the piece. Yeah, which we will get to talk about for a certain scene, a certain fuck you to continuity in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I have another question, though. Like a wild fuck you to continuity. <laughs> I was like, okay, now we're here. Okay. I got a question from da- Daniel. I may have landed an editing gig for a short film with a rather tight turnaround of two weeks for a local film school in L.A. 
and that's for them to be finalized at the end of the two weeks. How do you feel about taking on something like this without pay? I've been an AE and unscripted for years now with some editing credits to my name on shows like Cops and Discovery Channel shows and so on, neither of which is really what I have interest in cutting. So I'm thinking, take this and treat it as more practice. Should I ask for some kind of compensation? Thanks. What do you think, Tyler? I thought that was your th I thought that was your thought at the end when you said I'm thinking take this. I was like, "Oh, that's Ben's stance mm -hmm. on it. Take no. it and get the practice." My, all I'll say is that you will never profit off of working on student projects, even if there is money attached. So, it's all going to be practice and experience, and if you go in with that attitude, good. But just know you're never going to make a living <laughs> working on student films, and it's all it's going to cost you something in in some way, shape or form, but you will learn from it. Yeah, I think especially if you don't have any narrative stuff on your resume, you might want to uh, consider it, especially if it's a if it's a film school in LA that is reputable. Now, I don't know which one you're talking about, but you could look at some of the past students, see if they um, I can name the four that are. Oh yeah, which you which like. ones are those? <laughs> UCLA, yes. AFI, yes. USC, and probably Loyola. Maybe you got some Pepperdine action going Chapman. around. I would include Chapman in there. Okay, I didn't. I I wasn't. I was just doing LA, but oh, okay. yes, oh, Orange OC. County is not LA. Yes, yes, yes. And there's uh, all kinds of great people that come out of other places. Yeah, but there there's lot not a lot of other places you're going to put on your resume that anyone's going to give a fuck about. There are a lot of pay-for-play <laughs> schools in L.A. where you get in if you pay the piper. And I don't know. Should we name some of those? And if no. It's, if it's one uh, we have a whole wonderful podcast to do about a, <laughs> a film that just came out from a filmmaker who did not go to film school, mind you. Prides himself on that. But he did. You can actually find the clips for his movie my best friend's wedding, which I'd always heard about of legend that he made would always say it was this horrible movie did not work out well made it with my friends. I didn't realize the footage is available now. You can see scenes from it. It's pretty fascinating. It's but from he never the went to weekend film school. film school, right? That's where he pulled this together. No, he, they literally tried to make a feature. Tarantino did called uh, my best friend's wedding. So okay. they made a feature that, that they never finished. Like it never got released. It was a disaster. It didn't work out well, but it's really interesting to see that was his film school. That said, Both of his editors, Sally Menke and Fred Raskin, both graduates of uh, uh, NYU uh, Tisch School of the Arts. So, you know, there's an argument on both sides of the coin there for you. What direction do you want to go? As long as you're doing stuff and you have the ability to make stuff, more power to you. Tarantino dropped out of high school, did not immediately begin making movies. There was a near 20-year period of writing scripts, trying to act, stuff like that to break through. So, you know, just have context for everything. And any opportunity you get to do something, if it's not halting you or if you're gaining something from it then what do you have to lose you I always want to be in the position where you have two things that you're deciding between and you choose the best choice for you i think is yeah. what i would recommend here's something that i occasionally do if it's a short and they don't have a budget i tell them pay me one full day rate and i'll cut the short and it's gonna whatever time it's gonna take is what it takes but i think it is important to get some form of payment to be valued as a as an editor sometimes you say yes to a free project and they take advantage of you because they don't value you your time because you gave it to them for mm -hmm. free and so yeah. having them somehow cough up some money 
and it's going to hurt them a little bit. Um, it's just <laughs> that bar barrier to entry where it makes them realize, oh, this is this is still I need to be a professional here. I can't just walk all over uh, the people that I hire. Yeah, and there's always a passion project that Sven will minimize compensation for and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean that's 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 great advice. Yeah, don't take it personally if people can't help you for free. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I rarely do do stuff at like a highly highly discounted rate. But if I see potential, if I really love the filmmaker, I feel like this script is awesome. I have to be involved in it. Then I I might do it for close to nothing. <laughs> He made YouTube videos for nothing, and now look at him <laughs> for a long time. All right, good. Those were my two user comments. Thank you so much. Throw more at me. If you're listening, you have a question. Instead of answering you directly, we'll maybe do it in the podcast and then other people can benefit from the answer or can chime in. And can I do a user comment? Yeah, go for it. I'm trying to find it because I sent it to you. Oh, I actually have it right here. The user comment I had was a text from our producer, Sean. <laughs> who's a producer for like two episodes and took off but it's doing a lot of cool stuff every once in a while he chimes in and this week's chime in was I love that you didn't edit out Sven's first take of Michael Showalter's name on recent episode right and I said oh I, I hope he because he mispronounced but that's part of the fun of the show is we mispronounce nearly every name that's stated um, which, which I would have taken out if I needed to get back into the show to fix something else and I felt like oh there could be maybe something Like sometimes I move around the scene analysis when we actually hear the actors uh -huh. talk on scene. Sometimes Ooh. I go back in and then I would have taken Whoa. it out. But otherwise I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> But also he didn't realize how fantastically manipulated that moment was because you actually said it wrong and there was like a two minute gap where some I had a mic issue where we couldn't hear me correcting you. So we had to wait for me to correct. So it was an edited moment <laughs> that actually took some labor to, to, <laughs> to put in to have that like authenticity. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it happened, yeah. you know? Um, hey, uh, speaking of mispronounced names. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to work on bad segues into talking about the, the movie of the week, the scene of the week. Yes. Should we uh, begin? Sure. Are you talking about Friedrich Raskin? <laughs> talking about mispronounced names. Oh, wow. Names? <laughs> the editor. No, the, I just realized there's no one's name we're probably going to mispronounce on, well, on I just this did. one. Fred Raskin. You mispronounced the editor. Yeah, the Fred editor Raskin, of yes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Now, a little setup for this. Yes. I get a text from Sven that says, I'm going to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And by the way, I'm being protective of the beginning of the episode and not giving away spoilers because this movie was fucking ruined for me. I don't know why I looked at a comment board just in terms of, I was looking at, the, there's a dog in the movie that won an award at the Cannes Film Festival and I was like, oh, and act, as I scrolled up on the, the comment board months ago, some fucking asshole said what the end of the movie was, the, oh, twist, wow. the twist of the movie. And so that was months ago and I was like, does that happen? Does it not? And then of course, you know, it became more and more apparent, but the way that it was phrased, you know, it was still, it was still fresh to me. Um, and I was maybe able to enjoy, I was really, really pulling for it to have that ending as it, we saw him celebrating Sharon Tate and her, her witness, her own work being appreciated and stuff like that. I really needed the movie to end the way that it did. It was very satisfying. It was the, uh, the yeah. audience was cheering and clapping at the end. 
And another another little setup about this movie is, and I was, and I had to buy tickets Tuesday. I saw it at the ArcLight Cinerama Dome because I'm like, it's in the movie. I thought the Fox Theater was in the movie as well. That's where she was going to watch her movie foolishly, but she went to the Bruin across the street. Yeah. And I was like, I got to see it at ArcLight because we know how important that is to Tarantino after the whole Hateful Eight debacle, Disney kicking him out, et cetera, et cetera. Or I have to on the dome, or I have to see it at the Fox Theater. And on Tuesday, the only tickets I could get were like Saturday morning. Um, and I had an extra for a little while. Our Sven and I's friend Mario went with me. I should have just invited you. I didn't even think of it. And then you told me, hey, I'm going Sunday night. And I was like, oh, shit. But, it, but someone I invited to go to the movie texted me, oh, I saw it last night. These are my thoughts, expressing their disappointment. <laughs> oh, wow. In response to me inviting them to the fucking movie. So for some reason, and then everyone where I'm working on Thursday night saw it, and all day Friday just had to fucking have a back and forth. So I had the noise-canceling headphones going, focusing on the edit. It was uh, quite the debacle to get there in one piece, Sven. So you didn't read the text, obviously. You deleted the text. No, I did. I couldn't not. It was like, sorry, I couldn't. Sorry, I saw it last night. I can't tell you how disappointed I was. It's like, what the fuck? Wow. Why go that direction? Like, it's one thing to say you really enjoyed it. And I do think that there are a lot of mixed reactions to the movie. I've seen a lot of disappointment and outrage about it. Yeah. So I was very curious what your experience was, Finn. I, didn't, I tried not to poison it for you at all. All right. You want to hear? Yes. Okay, good. It's going to take a minute. So my brother was in town. He's from China. He's German, but he works and lives in China. So we did the whole Hollywood Boulevard, going to the man Chinese. Awesome. We had awesome. n- nice uh, lunch at Michelli's on Las Palmas, which is an awesome old <laughs> Italian pizza place. Walked, no, that's where I was when they shut the street down for the filming. They had all Hollywood shut down. Yeah, walked all the great. way down to the Arclight. I had tickets for the 35 millimeter screening that I got for 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see the 70 millimeter. Sunday. But I, I didn't even try because it was shot on 35, right? So what's the point? Why would you want to see it in 70 millimeter? Um, Fucking God. You'll tell me why, God. but I, I didn't feel the need. I was happy. But the Cinerama Dome... Uh, all right. Yeah, I'm, sure. <laughs> that'll be for a different episode. For a different episode. Yeah, it's a different screening room. We see room. Gemini Man. Yeah. No, yeah, but it's a it, it was screen. it was a great screening room. They the way they introduced the movie was awesome. They they made like a speech at the beginning, got the audience all <laughs> hyped. No commercials, no intermission. I thought there would have been an intermission because it's thirty five, right? And it's a two hour forty minute film. They had to change roles, but they didn't. And so here's here's my thing. Did I like the movie? Absolutely. You understand they change roles all the time, right? Sorry. Anyways, carry. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I thought two two hours forty minutes. They can't. I guess they can. I mean, it's been a while, but for some reason, yeah. I thought somebody said they need to take an intermission to switch roles. Anyway. That's bullshit. <laughs> Hateful Eight had an intermission, but they're constantly just switching reels during a movie. That's true. But also, that's like true. Midsommar's in theaters now, and that thing's like three three hours long. Well, that's what I thought Sorry. would happen. I was envisioning these huge. IMAX roles that they're switching or so, but that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I love the film. 70 millimeter. I really, I can't believe that that was two hours and 40 minutes. It felt to me like mm-hmm. barely 90 minutes. It was exciting. I think there's some, a lot of cool stuff we can talk about, about storytelling where it doesn't even matter who is the star, what's the production value, what the special <laughs> effects, like simple things that he's doing that a lot of filmmakers are not doing in terms of 
keeping us engaged the whole t whole thing through it's like you're just in in suspense the whole time trying to figure out what's going to happen next so i i yeah. i personally feel after pulp fiction this is probably my favorite i i agree with that i think there's obviously for me there's obviously like pulp fiction reservoir dogs jackie brown are all up there and then the scripts he wrote like right. true romance but i think in terms of his post post oscar Tarantino I think this is although he went on to keep winning them this is yeah for me this was great but also you know I live in Hollywood and understand why it would be a challenging film for a lot of people but I was also blown away at how short it felt yeah. and then not surprised at all to find out that there was a four hour cut that existed and it's a kind of movie to me it was very clear like a lot got cut out of yeah. I don't know if you could sense that, but it's also kind of like it had to be to become the thing it was. I've seen people complain that, oh, what there, there was no story. And it's like, yeah, but how deep does this thing go on character? And of course there's a fucking story, but we are, you really got to go and just live that day for the most part, kind of in the life of that time period. And I felt like it was a really rare, good representation of the life of an actor yeah. that knew how to do the job. You expect it to become gimmicky and his stutter or his drinking or his inability to remember lines to become kind of a gimmick thing or sort of like just a fake thing. But it's like, no, it's like this guy, he could have had DiCaprio's career. He had the same looks. He had the same talent, but he just didn't have like the psychology to succeed or the cards hadn't been dealt for him the right way or something like that. So it was really, to me, really fascinating in terms of like really looking at the work that goes on on set like that actors do and then also just that experience of like just how you're feeling failure all the time and then you just get this little glimmer of hope and that's what sustains you it was a horrible day for him the whole day but then boom one one take works and suddenly it's a success but then you got to learn the next one so, so i thought it was really well done yeah and i mean having read a little bit before and where people felt like it was indulgent and it had to do possibly because Sally Mankey wasn't editing this film, um, the late Sally Mankey, and that Tarantino <laughs> didn't have like the strong partner that would push back and make him be shorter, which, I mean, there are some interviews mm -hmm. where they both talk about that relationship where they have where it's this tug of war to get the movie to the perfect length and maybe there's a possibility that was missing here. It did not feel to me at all like this movie was indulgent or long well i have a couple points on that one i think it was incredibly indulgent but that's what i enjoyed about it yeah right that's what that was the fun is he was fully like indulging we watched like a 10 minute scene of sharon tate walking around <laughs> watching her own movie you know i mean it was the most indulgent movie i've maybe ever seen but yeah. that's what i liked about it is he was making his dream movie and was it really I, I, I 10 like minutes? He's one person, I don't know. But, it, you know, I mean, it wasn't a short... You know what I mean? It like probably you could do that was, scene in 40 seconds. it didn't seconds. feel like it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we could time it out and yeah. stuff like that later. But never mind Sally Menke. That's a certain type of relationship. The real person that's no longer in the equation for him on this film is Harvey Scissorhands, as oh. he's known, oh. in okay. terms of a strong personality pushing back on him. And Harvey Scissorhands, of course, being, you know, sex offender Harvey Weinstein. And this is the first non... Weinstein movie since Pulp Fiction that Tarantino did. Right. So that's that's what who I felt kind of like there was definitely a feeling of oh wow he's really just <laughs> this is like this is Tarantino unfiltered which we maybe saw a little bit on Death Proof but yeah that's just what I what I really liked about it. 
I guess I guess I would go so far to say, but yeah, it felt like the the lack of kind of the Weinstein press, which you can see in all those films, not just Tarantino's, is like the master anything he would come into the editing room on. Um, and like Harvey Weinstein's the one who was like Kill Bill's two movies. That wasn't the plan. Mm. They turned it into two movies, and I I this just to me more than any movie felt like the beginning of a series that would could go on forever, but also. That's what I like about it. That's what makes it different than TV is we have really strong characters. You want, they're going to live on in a stronger way now because this story ended. Or if they came back, you did more, you could, but that might kind of weaken the the strength of it. Yeah, yeah. So how do we make it specific? Are you ready to talk about some scenes and some editing? Or (laughs) is there some other things you want to touch upon first well the only the so it is a long movie the only and it is a long movie that that has very few events in it that has very few heavy plot moments in it maybe two yeah and the only point it started to lose me where i was like wow he is just going here suddenly we snap into the easy breezy monologue okay and (laughs) it's like yeah you you know what you're doing just him talking to that girl was the only part i was like wow he really is just not like that this is what this movie is and then suddenly you were just like fully sucked into it the thing that i think speci- that i that blew my mind most specifically in terms of the editing one you know it's known that this had originally had a four-hour cut and there were several people cut out of it which you even see in the credits like tim roth was cut out of it james marsden was going to be in it i'm assuming you know when you have actors like scoot mcnary timothy oliphant that those are much bigger roles at some point at some point i heard that cruz was looking at the role of a cop i heard sam jackson was playing a cop so for all we know and i really kind of believe this that the script might be very different in terms of it having maybe that kind of broken pulp fiction type framing which is what would give that this movie that kind of drive but i think what it got whittled into was just the perfect like fairy tale experience of really just going and like living in Tarantino's dream fucking world. But the thing that blew my mind more than anything was Tim, after all of those indulgent scenes, long, long, long scenes, like we're seeing an actor watch, we're watching an actor watch himself on TV for uh-huh. like a significant portion of the movie. We're watching drawn out takes that are going to be suddenly disposed of throughout the movie. We're watching, <laughs> I mean, there's just that little Nazi movie, the, the way that could be cut down without losing anything. Yeah. Um, like there's a character walking up a fucking spiral staircase in that, I feel like, that we never see and never know why we're watching that. But that's just because you're in it and you're experiencing it. So with all that, the fact that when Timothy Oliphant walks onto the fucking stage you know the perfect like elmore leonard dialogue delivering actor from justified finally gets to be with tarantino the fact that they just start jump cutting <laughs> through that interaction with the camera was like wait why here yeah. why here and i thought the jump cuts were really effective when he was having his meltdown yeah. but that's another one where i'm like oh the dailies of that fucking monologue man clearly that wasn't i don't assume that's how tarantino wrote it but it just seemed like there were a couple of points with the editing and even the thing like what does it take like the effort that went into having brad pitt on a roof with no shirt on yeah. for no conceivable fucking reason except to maybe see manson show up like yeah. I feel like that's another character that got cut out of the movie because yeah. it you know made like a stronger, more interesting point. But just like that whole like the editing of that flash, the, we, the movie had a fucking flashback within a flashback with voiceover explaining what was going on, which yeah. are all the things you don't do. 
Like you don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. That's cheating. And yet the laugh it got and the way it paid off was just and the excuse to just have Brad Pitt without a shirt to experience that. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just insanity, but brilliant insanity. The insanity that could have been fixed in the editing room, made a movie people couldn't bump back on. But I think those little unpolished varnishes are what makes it an experience, man. Yeah. Anyways. That's, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the jump cuts. I noticed that not because they were there, but because they were so inconsistent with the rest of the movie. Right. <laughs> so inconsistent. Like the most inconsistent fucking thing I've ever seen in any movie. Yeah. And it's interesting to see. And sometimes the style, or oftentimes, the style of the editing is dictated by the challenges you're facing. It's not like you have this idea, oh, we're going to use speed ramps and <laughs> we're going to do like strobe editing to make this work. It's more like, oh, how do we fix this? And this is the way, this is the only way we're going to get faster through the scene than doing this. Right. And then suddenly that becomes the signature of a scene or the entire movie. And that's that's a little bit what I'm sensing here. Like it, there's, it, I, I love the fact that it ha is rough around the edges as well. Like things change within scenes within <laughs> certain periods it just felt like a different different type of storytelling even the dialogue when they were like the the one-liners when they were watching his episode of fbi which yes we watched too <laughs> yeah. sounded so poorly mixed like it just sounded like it was coming out of the front speakers it was like these funny one-liners that were like killing but like why is this funny it just it's just like crazy and honestly the whole movie especially that jump cut thing with Oliphant yeah. which just seems like a just a glaring error in a film that then has this what must have been millions of dollars of special effects seamlessly putting DiCaprio into Great Escape yeah even <laughs> like fa like failing miserably in this character at McQueen's job in yeah. a weird way like it, in for me that scene I wasn't like oh he should have done that role it was like he will never be a star that's that and just for DiCaprio to kind of pull that off without it being a, drawing attention to I mean it's amazing but my point was going to be that that jump cut like the whole movie kind of screen the way the flashbacks were done everything screams to me screams and I hope that we can prove this true someday that the movie was cut on film uh -huh. that's my theory Okay. That this is the result of a movie edited in the style of the movies in the 70s. I mean, so even the credit what, sequence what was so un-Tarantino. So you're saying I it was cut on a just, flatbed? On a flatbed, yeah. Okay. They shot on film and they cut on film. And they didn't have the digital opportunities to make it neat and cute and draw little fucking boxes when someone calls someone a square. There was no snazzy, like the Tarantino title sequences, that's the indicator right there on this one. Is it, There was nothing snazzy about this or cool or polished about this title sequence. It was just kind of like, okay, we had the wrong names on the wrong dude. And then... <laughs> It just kind of just slowly went. It wasn't like the titles weren't like in tunes with cuts. It wasn't amazing like Jackie Brown or like the Reservoir Dogs thing. It was just very Django Unchained. I mean, it was just kind of... Uh, I mean, it definitely... It was like a sloppy movie. It definitely felt like the, the opening sequence and all this stuff were opticals, which doesn't hmm. necessarily mean that the film had to be cut on a flatbed. You could cut oh. it on an Avid, and then you just give the whole thing to the negative cutter, and then you order some opticals to be thrown in there. And that's, yeah. that's what it looked like to me. But it'd be really cool to mm -hmm. find out whether they did cut it. 
on Avid or it just kind of yeah it vibed restrictions like that's kind of the vibe the movie had yeah. was that they were and there's so many but that's the thing is all those great movies in the 70s that had those restrictions just the stuff they were able to embrace and live with I mean it it all kind of came from that and, and that's kind of being lost now with everything having to be so neat and polished and yeah. oh we can trim this up we can trim that and that kind of goes back to the comment from Amanda the question it's like fuck it it doesn't there's so many great fucking movies that are known you're born after they're made knowing and being told they're masterpieces that are full of fucking flaws like i talk about i mean love story is not my favorite movie but there's a chunk of that fucking movie that's out of focus like yeah. at the ice skating rink while, while the camera's dollying in and sometimes i think those errors and that's why i think the horror films of the 70s and 80s aren't cannot be topped because those errors that dirty sound and stuff like that i think is what makes it feel a Alive in a way and like oh shit things can go wrong people can get hurt we can do a weird jump cut to bruce lee getting thrown into a fucking side of a car <laughs> you know and, not, <laughs> and it's gonna just totally cheat it and it's gonna work you know yeah that was awesome too that's a, one of the examples where i feel like one of the big points i want to make is that the story is plausible yet surprising and right. that, that moment with uh, bruce lee felt ridiculous right. and plausible at the same time and i love the way that it was resolved where it had like it started to do the beats of three so there's this i'm not going to reveal the ending <laughs> but the the idea is that um cliff that's brad pitt he gets into mm -hmm. an argument with bruce lee and they duke it out they do like a, a fight And which I theorize, which I yeah. theorize was the genesis of that scene. Was it somewhere Tarantino read a quote of Bruce Lee saying that he could kick uh, Muhammad Ali's ass. Right. And that was the genesis of that scene. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's what they were fighting about. And so round one, Bruce Lee wins. Round two, the stunt guy wins. And it's, it's looking not really good for Bruce Lee. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, is he actually going to have... Uh, Cliff beat Bruce Lee's ass in this movie. How is he going to resolve this? And then the way it just unfolds is just completely surprising, yet totally plausible, and makes for the most rewarding possible outcome of a scene like this, which I think was really, really right. awesome. Yeah, it lets you also kind of think back of like, oh, that is how you kind of cop out of that, is that he knew what move was, you know, he kind of cheated to beat Bruce Lee the yeah. second go. Right, so you kind of have that, but then also the fact that this guy is being set up as this human fucking cannon or whatever who can do anything, who can <laughs> jump onto roofs, like whatever. You're <laughs> expecting the battle royale of fucking battle royales at the end of that, and all he does is punch a woman in the face with a heavy can and beat another woman to death. Oh, wow. There's no, you know, insane martial arts thing. He kind of gets beat. He gets stabbed in the leg. And then a dog does all the hard work. So that was your, I mean, I was expecting some, some his stuntman abilities to be a big part of that finale based on the spoiler that I received. But and no you sir. just gave him away. Oh, yeah. I said I people, would. People can put it together. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> so plausible yet Nothing surprising is a big one. And I want to touch upon a scene out there on the ranch somewhere where the Manson family was living. But in. let me let yeah. me squeeze in one little thing real quick about this movie is that a lot of people are like struck by it. I think that there is 
I think that the one issue the movie has is that I don't think it's an issue, but I think people in terms of people wrapping their minds around their expectations, because again, so little is given away. If you can accept that this is a seven million dollar movie from the time period, then yeah. in order to be made now costs seventy million dollars because yeah. of the cast involved and stuff like that and recreating the, the period that it takes place in. I think it's a little easier to wrap your mind around the weird curveball poem to themselves that the end to Sharon Tate and what she could have been that this film is is all I want to throw out there. It's a seven million dollar movie made for seventy million today. Oh, okay. Right. More spoilers. So <laughs> anyway <laughs> So he, so we have this we have this ranch, and Cliff drives out there because he picked up one of the girls from the Mans- Manson uh, family and is giving her a ride back there. Turns out he is friends with the owner of the ranch because they shot there back then. George Spawn, the the Spahn. real life character with the real ranch that they really lived on. Yeah, yeah. And if you're interested to see another movie that has literally the same set, amazingly, you can check out Charlie Says from the director of American Psycho that just came out a few months ago. That's actually from the women's perspective that committed the murders. Yeah. So he's arriving there and he's talking to some of the people that are living there and he gets continuously more suspicious about what possibly could have happened to the ranch owner. And mm-hmm. as we are seeing this unfold, we cut to the inside of the sort of the main building, and it's completely occupied by all the cult members of the Manson clan. And Ch- Charles Manson, he's not anywhere to be seen. He's like somewhere on a trip so, somewhere, which is interesting, right? We hardly is there only one scene where we see him at the beginning, or did, do we ever see him? I'm not sure. We definitely see Manson, and that's something that is to be talked about, the meaning of not seeing him. He, yeah. yeah, he walked... That's the whole reason that Pitt was on the roof of the house, yeah. to see Manson arrive and I go see. over that's there. The but guy. like in the trailer, there's a close-up of him. But yeah, that's him. That's why they have all those creepy shots. And the weird thing about this movie is that like Curta Music, who does the music for this podcast, was at a bar a month or two ago surrounded in Chicago and a group of people did not know who Charles Manson was. So that's a weird context too. For people that right. don't know the details of this thing, like what the fuck is that ride? That's what we'd be interested in hearing some feedback on. If you never even knew who Manson was and saw this movie because you like Titanic, let us know what you thought. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then there's the version where you kind of know what happened, but you don't know the details. Like, I didn't know right. about the ranch at all. So I wasn't right. sure whether this is grounded in reality or not. Oh, yeah. People, I know people that have been like, but so were these guys really her neighbor? And it's like, ah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> Roman Polanski, is that real? Was he really married to? Yes. And yes, yes. he was. So, and... <laughs> so, Sorry. I was like, that's the one detail. He's like, fuck it, I'm putting Polanski in, all right? I don't give a shit. Okay? I mean, it's, marry her? it's such Polanski. an unimportant okay. little nugget in the film, right? But everybody well, talks about it's Polanski It's funny that they the kind of shit on him. Yeah. Yeah, but he was the shit. Like, he was the biggest director at that time. And then it's all about the tragedy of the way their lives went after that. I mean, you know, you kind of have to just factor that trauma and the trauma surviving the Holocaust. Yeah, I didn't know any You know, his life that. went a certain direction after that. Yeah. I didn't. I I had no clue. I had no clue that Quincy Jones was supposed to be there at the night when the murder happened, and he just happened to not show up. 
and all that stuff. Well, Quincy Jones, Steve McQueen. Is yeah. that real? No, yeah. Steve McQueen was supposed to be there. That's what I read. Oh, both of them? Quincy Jones and Steve McQueen? I don't Steve know McQueen was Steve in this McQueen. movie. Steve McQueen was at the, yeah, it was at the, uh, the bunny at ranch. The Playboy Mansion. Because he Playboy got added in. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me just say the gnarliest, most unnecessary things. You're saying Polanski wasn't necessary. The thing I was like, holy shit, is that they had a line that said, Roman's going to fuck this up anyhow. Was like, holy shit. Like, that's just fucking. That's gnarly. Anyway, I want to get to this scene to make my second big point. We're cutting inside the house several times. Cliff is standing outside in the ranch talking to some of the girls and one of the guys. And sort of the tribe leader there, she's like Mama Bear. She keeps saying, just keep me updated what's going on out there and let me know if he walks towards the house. And so we cut back to them talking a little bit more. Cliff gets more suspicious and he starts asking questions. And eventually he's going to say, they tell him, well, the, the owner, George, I think was his name. He's taking a nap. You can't see him right now. And he eventually says, well, I'm going to have to find out for myself. I'm going to just make sure. And then he walks up there and they all start leaving the house. And it just builds suspense because we as the viewer at this point, we know just a little more than the main character does. And we Mm -hmm. worry. We start to like, how? what are they doing? What is their plan? How are they going to react to the fact that... Uh, our main guy is walking in there and he's going to find out. And at this point, we're basically convinced that George is dead, right? That's what you thought? And we haven't seen Manson anywhere. And no. I, I knew he wasn't dead because I knew the real story, but my concern, and also knew that like Bruce Dern was playing him, but also the <laughs> oh, okay. fact Inside. that Burt Reynolds was supposed to and did the table read and then passed away. It was going to be his final role. Oh, that's but, why. I saw somewhere that Burt Reynolds is in the movie and I'm, I was looking for him yeah. the whole time. This is a murderous cult that he's walking into that was known for hiding cars and threatening to kill people, actually killed people. Like, who knows what could happen to this fucking guy out there? You know, and Manson's nowhere to be seen. The bad guy's off the ranch in this total western of a scene. Yeah, so... What can happen? Cliff walks up to the house, to the front door, and Mama Bear stands just uh, in front of him, (laughs) and there's a screen door between them. And he's like, hey, I'm here to visit George. He's like, okay, how do you know him? We've been friends. Uh, when was the last time you saw him? Or it's been probably been eight years. She's like, well, you must be a hell of a friend then for eight years. Well, I really want to see him. She's like, no, you can't see him right now. He's taking a nap. And at this point, all like we're so gripped to figuring out what's going to happen next. And my position mm-hmm. was he's dead. And she wants to prevent cliff from finding out and wants to make sure he just leaves and if he doesn't leave he, she's gonna kill him or one of those guys is gonna kill cliff that's the suspense Try that's going to. on that's with my me. stance on that and he threw bruce lee into a fucking car i was looking forward to that yeah and at some <laughs> point the main character brad pitt says well i'm gonna go in there and i'm gonna find out what happened to george and this screen door is not gonna stand in my way and you sure as hell not as well so the main character clearly stating what the motivation is and we're seeing clearly what the obstacle to it is this is all in terms of storytelling pure drama at this point it doesn't really matter that we're looking at stars that this is shot beautifully that they spend a lot of money building the set this could have been shot with an iphone 
and two reasonably good actors and you as an audience member would have been just gripped riveted to figure out what's happening and i think throughout this entire movie we have scenes like this going on constantly where you are just in suspense trying to figure out what the hell is going to happen next and that's why this two hour and 40 minute film felt like 90 minutes or less and yeah that's a big takeaway for me it's Quentin Tarantino is a brilliant storyteller that is able to create interesting situations where it doesn't really matter who's playing the parts. All that matters is what is the obstacle, what, are the, what is the dialogue that's going to reveal how this is going to unfold. Well, the other thing that was amazing about it and unexpected is that, that what an anticlimax the end of that scene was. Yeah. It's yeah. exactly what they said it was. Yeah, exactly. Damn, you know, you're you revealing just, it again. Well, I told you I fucking would. That's what we're here. That's what's happening on this yeah. podcast. But then more importantly to the to the point is that that if you look at this movie as being entirely about character, yeah. then you like in all about setting up the legend of Rick Dalton, like whatever, it's just a love story of these two, you know, a stunt man, one of Tarantino's favorite archetypes, and then like a Hollywood actor. That scene is all about Cliff Booth and learning who he is. Now, let me ask you a question. Sure. So I had to think about this. Why do you think he went to that ranch from the get-go? Okay, well, in the moment, I didn't really know where he's going. So for me, it was set mm -hmm. up in the a way that... The moment he decided to... Sorry, why he did, why did he decide to drive that girl there? Right. Well, I think for me, there was a setup. He, that's the third time that he's meeting that girl. And twice, he mm -hmm. had to turn her down to give her a ride because he was going in the wrong direction. And mm -hmm. so for me, at the beginning, this was like, well, I'm kind of heading that way or I have time anyway. I need to kill time. So now I'm going to have some fun with her. And it turned into mm -hmm. like she's trying to, like she comes onto him and he's actually uh, re reacting differently than what I thought would happen with that scene. And... Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that he's like casually revealing that he actually has been to that ranch before, that they've shot there before. Maybe it was set up before even that the cowboy show with Leo was up there, but I, I didn't remember the spawn Maybe. ranch. That's for sure. But yeah. I, I bought into the whole thing. <laughs> so I didn't question it and I, it never crossed my mind. Why would he even go up there? I felt like, well, he's got some well, time to kill and this is a pretty girl. Well, let me let me take it a step further. Why do you think he was checking her out after the right at the start of the movie when he saw that group walking? Well, because she was pretty and she was flirting with him. Well, she's the one that looked back. And what's the first thing he asks her? I don't is remember. how were those pickles? He's like, how were the pickles? Oh, okay. So what he's doing? My yeah. take on that scene, and it, this is why I think it's such great writing in terms of revealing character, because you think that this is a guy who's trying to hook up with the hippie chick. Right. Who wouldn't? Right? right? The way that scene's fucking set up, the way that world's laid out. It's fucking Brad Pitt playing Cliff Booth. It's fucking stuntman, lives in a trailer. Okay. Got nothing to do, been given the day off. Why the fuck would he not? But it's been established, one, that he talks to hippies, he buys drugs off of them, right? We learn that later. But I think the only reason, and he's turned her down a couple times for a ride, The I think he's pulling over because... For the same reason that he was checking her out from the car is what's up with this fucking sketchy group of fucking hippies walking around. Okay. And when he hears that they are 
living on that ranch, which he establishes as way the fuck out in Chatsworth, nowhere near where he's going, that's when he agrees to take her. Because for him, from the get-go, it's about doing the right thing and kind of being there for other people. Yes. Right, that's kind of his whole thing with Leo, et cetera, et cetera. And I think his only reason for going out there was to check on George, and just something didn't feel right about this thing. And sure, maybe it plays out this way or that, but he turns her down. You know, I, I just think that's the whole reason he was there, and the whole reason he was. I think I said this checking him out in the first place is it's like what's up with these fucking hippies, and then that's why he wants to know. Like, did you eat those pickles? He knows they're dumpster divers, right? Like, that was just my take on it. And then I what's, think the thing that the, finalizes all of that, and when he's when he's walking out and she says, you, should get, you need to get out of here. And he's like way ahead of you. He's been ahead of her this whole time. What does he mean by pickles? She was carrying a jar of pickles that they pulled out of the dumpster. Oh, right. When, when he first saw them. So he's observing fucking everything. And he's yeah. picking up on it all. And these are some sketchy fucking people. And that's what it comes down to. I don't think he's like a tail hound. I think that's how it's set up. And I think that's like the cool twist is that this is a hero. This is an honorable outsider hero. This just, he's the sheriff kind of going through this world, making sure everything's on the level. Yeah, <laughs> he's, definitely. He's I the mean, moral balance of that movie. That definitely was revealed then in the car, right? He didn't, he didn't do oh, what for we sure, thought yeah. he would do. But the Chatsworth and the ranch, point. that came up only the third time, right? When they actually had a conversation. This is not something he knew prior to her walking up yeah. to the car. But I think he pulled over to talk to her. He bought drugs off another girl. I don't think he was trying to pick a chick up. I think he was just seeing what the deal was. And that would have gone no further. Maybe if she was going on his way, that's a different thing. But his whole reason Which for is, going well, that far out of the way was... I definitely thought that he was going to take her for a ride. That was my anticipation, the way yeah. it was set up. Now, it's, it'd be interesting to find out when she actually talks about the ranch. Was it in the car or was it outside the car? No, it's before and she gets in. That's why he gives her a ride. Because she's, she's like, it's in Chatsworth. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing out there? And then he's like, oh, Spawn Movie Ranch? Okay, and then, she's like, yes. And he's like, so you and a bunch of friends are living on Spawn Movie Ranch. Then it would be and interesting says, to yeah. see how that would, was cut. Like, she says it. And then do we cut to a close-up? Is there some indication of that's what's forming the decision? I mean, none of that I, I don't, remember. I don't but think the movie needs the it. I don't, yeah. But I think that's the movie didn't need that stuff. But I think that subtext is there. And when he's walking out and he says, way ahead of you, it's like, yeah, that's, he was there for that reason to check on George. And oh, he's yeah, not going to yeah, say, yeah. hey, I'm going to go up there and check on him. And he's playing it nice. He'll play it nice. They get the best. Everyone gets the benefit of the doubt from him. But at the end of the day, he's going into that house. And he, you know, he knows he's going to a weird situation. He doesn't get a weapon or anything like yeah. that. And then the um, nice thing about how this whole scene then fits into the bigger picture of the film is that even though it's an episode and it kind of closes a chapter there, it completely sets up the rest of the movie in terms of how this is going to come down. It motivates a lot of the stuff that's happening later. Right. And there's a very important editing thing I want to touch on with you for a second. I mean, yeah. one, I think that this whole... I, I th Again, I have a theory that there was a framing device in this movie. There were cops involved. I have a theory that it was. it could have been a movie that had a broken timeline that would have been really engaging, could have started with the end, being asked about something that happened up on yellow drive the violence and stuff like that because i was kind of hinted to and then we have this like fucking kurt russell doing <laughs> narration the craziest thing about this movie is that oh, towards the even, end a narrator yeah i, exactly, I didn't even connect that that's kurt russell that's awesome towards 
towards the end of this movie, a narrator explains that they have a bond deeper than brothers. Like that's how that connection, like it's like, well, no, the movie's supposed to do that fucking work. Yeah. You have a narrator come in and explain that they're actually friends. Cause I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't clear on that, like through the whole fucking film, but couple things one not using parallel action during the fight scene at the end like the amount of times they could have gone to leo in the pool yeah and like the restraint it took not to do that fucking you know noise canceling headphones on like i think that's fascinating and also the use of whooshes sven's favorite tool and okay. there were some cheap ass whoosh sounds in that movie to establish every time we saw, you know, the street sign, any sign of danger, there would always be like the, the heavy bassy whoosh. Yeah. Which was well, they used it well because it, it wasn't apparent to me. I didn't even notice it. Ooh. But it, it would fit for Ooh. a Tarantino movie, right? We've seen that in Kill Bill probably. I, no, but this was like just like a casual, like one of the street sign. That it was Cello Drive or Cielo Drive, or again pronouncing things wrong. Wherever they, wherever Sharon Tate lived, yeah. there was like a, a dready whoosh sound. It was very p- kind of playfully heavy-handed. And what do you think it means for Manson not to be in this movie? Yeah, I, th- I, my theory is that a lot of people have a problem with him basing this fictitious story on a true event that's quite horrible. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. he thought about this at all, but I think it makes it less of a big deal for me because it's not directly dealing with Manson. It's, it makes it, I knew fairly little about the incident before I saw the movie. Now I read up on it to really get a full grasp of the entire story. And then I made the connections and I connected the dots more like how the other players uh, very well grounded in reality but it it felt mm-hmm. to me like these could have been even more so fictitious characters they could have been i didn't think they were, would really be living on a ranch they could be living somewhere in the hollywood hills and hide out there mm-hmm. i didn't have any of this information but i think by not making it specifically about charles manson as a character like if he would have a fighting scene with him it makes it a little bit more okay to to go in that direction. It could have been a little bit more out of taste. That's well, wait, my take let me on explain it. this though. So, yeah. so in real life, Charles Manson ordered in order to start a race war, right. these th- literal people that yeah. they fought at the end yes. and fucking killed, spoiler, they those people went to Sharon Tate's house, killed pregnant Sharon Tate and her friends, including Jay Sebring some you know that Emil Hirsch played. Yeah, yeah, all four. Yeah, there. all four people that were there. Two nights later, did the same fucking thing to two other people because they were sloppy the first time. So Charlie wanted done. He tied them up himself the second time. So they have fundamentally altered history. But also, Charles Manson served a life sentence for this as the fucking person responsible for it for ordering his cult members to do this. Yeah. So. What does it mean in this fantasy where the actual people don't get to go on to commit the next murder? They don't commit the first murder because they just get, they commit one home invasion and get fucking killed. What does it mean for Manson in the way that Hitler was fucking taken off the table in Glorious Bastards? What does it mean for Manson not to get, why can't this movie have Cliff go, go back up to the ranch and kill the fuck out of Manson? Like, why does Manson get off scot-free? Like, what's the statement in that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I 
I I don't know the answer to that question. For me, it felt super satisfying how this was resolved. It's sort of honored in a way. Sharon Tate, is that her name? Yeah. And gave her a, a possible life. This could have been her life. It ended basically on the fact that she has now a full life. And I, I felt that was actually a really nice, beautiful way of of ending the film. And it it didn't matter to me that Charles Manson didn't get his reckoning. So much controversy, though, surrounds that fact, right? That they're the ones that... I mean, it's just such a big statement, the capital punishment that they are facing yeah. in the form of a pit bull and a fucking flamethrower yeah. where Manson, <laughs> you know, man, and just like his rage at these people because they not only ended that group's life, they changed the world. Like that was a town where people would walk around with their doors open at night, unlocked. And from that night forward, never again. Yeah. And that's always been like the point. So he kind of gave the world a happy ending, but at the same time showed that it wasn't all. Well, maybe this makes it more nuanced. Like you're having these thoughts right now. He didn't give it a. F- well, it wasn't all. I guess what I'm saying is he showed it wasn't all happy times for everybody yeah. for all those characters living that life. Like R- Rick Dalton didn't have a great, great, great life, but then was able to like everyone was kind of able to have a great life because of this. And I think in a fucked up way, Manson was too, right? There probably weren't any more murders committed after the guy from the cowboy TV show blowtorched one of his followers. Yeah. So you what know, he, he probably never faced any penance for ordering those murders. Like that's what's crazy is that that wasn't explored. And I think that there's a big statement in the fact that the mindless followers committing the atrocity are the ones that are facing the punishment in this movie. I think there's a statement in that, oh, I see. but so I don't know what it is. Of why you just I think there's it, a right? big statement in the way this played out. You well, sure. But I just think yourself. that he's doing a lot more. I don't think he's mindlessly... I mean, this is a guy that you know, fired a machine gun into Adolf Hitler's face, right? At a movie screening. There's no way Manson walks free unless there's some fucking meaning to it. And it all felt perfect. It all felt wrapped up, but it's like, whoa, what? (laughs) We're seeing a woman being two teen, like basically teenage girls being beaten to death. What, you know, what's the meaning in that when this creepy fuck gets to, gets to walk off? Well, you answered your own question. Sequel? Does he just want a sequel? Is it a pilot? I don't understand. Or is there a, a meaning to it? Well, I think you're hinting at the meaning. I don't think it's the sequel. No, I don't know. Idea. I just I really haven't figured it out. But I have an opinion. <laughs> but you're not you're not <laughs> stating it up front. You're just hinting at it. I'm just saying these are the pieces I've gathered. Okay. You know these these are the archetypes. Well, I, mean, I think with. I understand what you're saying. I think I know what you're what you think. Tarantino is trying to tell us in terms of what's going on today. I know what I read from it, but I see what I'm saying. I don't know what he's saying, but I know what I read. Now I'm starting to talk like him. I I don't know what he read out of it. Okay. (laughs) I know, I know what I took out of it, but I don't know what he intended. Yeah. Well, I don't think he's going to tell us, right? He never does. Fred Raskin. It's just going to be up to the audience to figure it out themselves. But I think you have a valid, you have a valid premise there. And that's an interesting thought that definitely didn't cross my mind in the moment. So that didn't that yeah. didn't resonate with me, but I think it resonated with you. Yes, and yeah, we're we're very curious people's reactions to this movie. I think it it is a it is a very divisive movie. I'm glad that you enjoyed it, Sven. This could have been very different. 
as a podcast. I've met a lot of, and you know, things that are different. People are like confused by and challenged by. And I think that there's so much that could have been done quote unquote in a more acceptable way in this film but i think effort was made to to not do that and i think that whatever hour of movie was lost however many scenes were lost i just think this this experience this road trip of movie that maybe wasn't even meant to just be about the two dudes yeah is just perfect i've her not having any dialogue it's perfect i mean that's what it is i'm so happy that it's a movie that is the type of movie that we haven't seen in years that this is a film where you walk in, you have no idea what's going to happen. You're surprised. You're genuinely surprised about how this unfolds. I, I can't remember a time when I've seen a movie where I was like surprised and not knowing what happens next. There's a lot of movies out there where you're like, okay, this is cool. They've done a really nice job. But was I really surprised? I don't think so. Is this staying with me? I don't right. think so. And I think this is a movie that's really... It's going to hold up for a long, long time. I'm glad we get to see it in the theaters right now. And I would highly recommend the viewers to take a look at it. Or if you've seen it already, then uh, let us know what you think, how you experience this film. Do you think it's one of the classics, the instant classics? Is it one of the best Tarantino films you've seen? Or are we just a bunch of saps that lived in Hollywood for too long? <laughs> True. What? <laughs> it is beautiful. Right, I mean, like it, it too. does show Hollywood in a really sort of nostalgic way. In a way, I feel like I actually relate to. I came here in the '90s, and I felt like I recognized certain things that are now gone from right. from LA or Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's oh, beautiful. big time. Yeah, and the new Beverly getting to be in the movie in the form of the porn theater that it used to be <laughs> as they went to the actual restaurant they had their actual last dinner at across the street. I mean, it's so like, it's so his movie it's mind blowing. And, but also watching it, I'm kind of like, really dude, you got 10 movies in you and that's it. If you're going to do one like that, you should be doing a movie a year for 20 movies. Come on. But that said, if he has one movie left and that's true, it better be a fucking Western. He wants to make a Western so fucking bad in every movie he does. And, <laughs> I'm not counting Django Unchained because it wasn't in the fucking Western West. So there you go. Awesome. The thing that I feel like we meant to talk about was the editor's career and like the meaning of Sally Menke in his life. But look at Fred Raskin's credits. Look at the movies he assistant edited on. I mean, talk about a slate. Holy shit. He did all Paul Thomas Anderson's movies from Heart 8. He was assistant editor, also doing Tarantino's movies. And then also working with Justin Lin, mm-hmm. who is not even remotely in the fucking same business as those two, even though he went to UCLA. Uh, but still, he did you know some stuff on Justin Lin's first thing. He did some stuff on this weird movie called Hard Eight with Gwyneth Paltrow and Sam Jackson, a movie that was called Sydney at the time that became Hard Eight. And just f- over a decade, you know, as assistant editor, and then got to step up after putting his time in. And that's that's really the journey that it takes. And appreciate whatever you're working on. If you're if you're in that club and you're getting those opportunities, because you will you will get your day, and hopefully for less tragic reasons than than he did. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I I was going to say nice, but it wasn't the right moment to say nice, so I I opted not to say anything. 
little bit of, a little a long pause to end on. So if you enjoy what you're hearing, why don't you why don't you do the wrap ups, man? I feel like I talk too much. Yeah, if you enjoy what you're hearing, come back to episode fifty, find out if we're gonna have one and uh, definitely talk to us. Let us know what you think about this movie. It's interesting to see let us know if you like that we're doing current movies as they're in the theaters. Because obviously we can't talk so specifically about scenes because they're not available just yet but we can be more sort of in the moment when people really care about this stuff and be curious to see which version of this podcast you prefer thanks so much for listening or you like a little bit of both where are they going to make these comments and stuff and are they going to are they going to subscribe um they'll find a way you could email me or you could tweet me <laughs> at thisguyedits.com. Sorry, no, at thisguyedits. And, oh, and if you if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the podcast. Let a friend know. If you have a friend that saw the movie, has an opinion about it, hates, especially if they, if they fucking hated this movie, have them listen to the show and then we want to hear from them. Very and cool. as Sven always says, happy editing. Oh, thank you to Curtis for the music. He was an assistant editor on Tromeo and Juliet. Is that a typo? <laughs> yeah, Tromeo and Juliet was a, a a movie from that guy that did all those uh, horror trauma studios that did Toxic Avenger. Oh, mind, cool. That's like all the brain I had left is what just happened. Writer, James Gunn. Yeah.